Good afternoon. This is the Public Affairs Energy Program, Power for the People here on WERU-FM, uh, 89.9 in Blue Hill and 99.9 in Bangor. I'm your host today, Steve Cowell. So this program uh, usually talks about uh, issues like solar power, uh, solar PV and heat pumps and electric vehicles, because the goal of Power for the People is in fact to help Mainers better understand and take control of their energy future, which means taking control or having at least better control of their energy budget. Uh, today, however, I think we're gonna talk at a little bit, a little bit higher level um, because my special guest today is Melissa Burchard, who uh, works for the Acadia Center in, uh, in Boston, Massachusetts. She's a senior regulatory attorney for the Acadia Center. Uh, she, Melissa has, a, uh, has an impressive record. Uh, she's, uh, again, a public, uh, public uh, an attorney. Um, and she has worked with, she got a degree uh, from Georgetown Law in 2009. She's worked on New England energy issues since uh, 2015 uh, and joined the Acadia Center in 2020. So, Melissa, I really appreciate you taking the time to be on with us. Um, we're going to talk, no doubt, about uh, some bigger picture issues. Uh, we're probably going to throw a few too many acronyms uh, at the audience, so let's just try real hard to define those and, and uh, minim minimize the acronyms. But tell us a little bit more about, about your background. Well, first, thank you so much, Steve, for having me this afternoon and for talking about these really important issues that affect us all. I think you summarized my background pretty well. I work on issues like uh, regional power, achieving our uh, decarbonization goal, building out transmission, um, getting offshore wind built, all these really important and, and fun issues um, that New England is facing right now. Well, thank you for that. And tell us a little bit more about the Acadia Center itself. Sure. Acadia Center is a New England-based organization with offices across the region including one in Rockport, Maine. We advocate clean energy and climate solutions to build a healthy climate, as well as a resilient economy and equitable opportunities for New Englanders across the region. And how long has the Acadia Center existed? The Acadia Center has been around for a couple of decades. It has been, really? Okay, I didn't realize that. All right, and it has, a, has an, an office in Rockport, um, which is interesting information. Maybe Jeff Marks works out of that office, does he? Yeah, well, we're all remote at the moment, but <laughs> we do have some people working out of Rockport, at okay. least in theory, once we get back into the office. Sure. Well, so I'm going to start with, uh, with perhaps the, uh, the biggest issue that the average listener is, uh, is dealing with and aware of, and that is the price spike that's happened uh, literally in the last couple of weeks uh, from Central Maine Power. And I think uh, the, the other utility in Maine uh, has had a high, higher increase as well. Uh, why is the price spiked? That's a great question. Um, prices have spiked for a number of reasons, one of which is the pandemic, another is climate change, and a third is um, demand and international demand. So here in New England, we are now tied to uh, the price of commodities internationally with respect to the LNG market. So as demand rises internationally uh, for uh, gas, our prices go up. And the pandemic has caused prices to go up in Europe, prices to go up in Asia. Those price increases are impacting us here. 
But there's also some other international instability uh, driving those price increases, particularly in Europe, uh, where there's some you know, fighting going on between uh, export and gas from here to there. Uh, and that causes prices to go up in Europe, which again, uh, incents folks in, in the United States to export LNG instead of selling it here at home. In addition, uh, during that really cold spell that we all read about in Texas, uh, that cold spell caused a slowdown in gas production in this country. And uh, after the slowdown, we had a really hot summer that caused parts of the country to use more gas than usual. So we have uh, you know, a, a perfect storm of different factors causing those price spikes right now. And uh, certainly the price of natural gas is a, is a big part of that. And uh, you know, relative to the pandemic, my understanding is that uh, investment in and uh, extraction of fossil fuels declined. Uh, and then all of a sudden we came, the economy came roaring back. Uh, and that, that leads to the, the shortages that you were referring to a few minutes ago. So that's, does that make sense? That's right, Steve. That's part of what's going on here. That's part of what's going on in Europe. And in addition, um, the oil uh, prices spiked for similar reasons, which was, you know, things dropped during the pandemic and then went up again, but we weren't quite prepared for that. Right. So uh, this is not a, a political show, but I will just say that uh, I think I can say fairly that the uh, political right wing does like to blame renewables for the price spike. Could you comment on that? I don't think anyone can blame renewables for a price spike uh, that relates specifically to gas and oil. Uh, we're having trouble getting uh, shipments of oil because there are not enough truckers due to the pandemic. That's another factor driving those oil prices up. And then with respect to gas, we really are facing uh, those, those, that tri triple storm that I mentioned uh, regarding the pandemic, climate change, and international demand. Right. I certainly, uh, again, no, no question there. Uh, one thing, uh, and uh, I apologize that we didn't talk about this in advance, uh, but the, uh, this is something else that is, that is uh, percolating here with people that I work with in uh, in Maine, and that's the citizen climate lobby and their proposal for, um, for a carbon fee and dividend. Is that something that uh, you are familiar with and can comment on? You know, Steve, I, I'm familiar with that and having uh, discussed it with folks some years ago, but I haven't been keeping up on that, so I couldn't uh, update you on the latest there. Okay, all right, fair enough. Just thought I just thought I would ask you of something that uh, that I did have some scribbled notes here on. So Acadia Center and uh, the your website talks about power grid reform. Uh, tell me where where you guys are going with that and what uh, what your recommendations are. Thanks for asking, Steve. Uh, first of all, New England is in a great position right now. We are perched on the edge of uh, a real clean energy economy. In the past five, maybe 10 years, there was a lot of talk about planning, about looking forward, about establishing the right law. And now we have a lot of that part of the picture in place. And the next thing to come is to get it built and to get the economy uh, roaring ahead as we, uh, we bring in the offshore wind, as we um, you know, uh, transform from the fossil fuels that are driving up our prices, that are, uh, you know, uh, Causing, cause these price spikes, we can transform to fuels like uh, offshore wind, which, which, which as you know, um, you know, has zero fuel prices. 
Um, this is a great moment to be in New England, a great moment to be involved with energy. The challenges are many. Uh, we need to build transmission, including to get that offshore wind to where people need it. Um, transmission is kind of like the arteries in our body for the electric system. Our arteries deliver our oxygen and our transmission delivers our electricity. Um, so without the transmission, we're, we're gonna have trouble getting clean energy where it needs to go. So that's one of the challenges. Another challenge is um, bringing everybody on board, um, bringing the, the um, regional uh, regulators on board, bringing the states on board and um, <clears throat> getting this engine uh, moving as quickly as possible. So that brings, you just mentioned the uh, regional uh, managers of the grid. Uh, ISO New England is, I, I guess, um, the kind of the bottom line manager of the New England grid. And I mean, I can, I'm uh, well versed in saying ISO New England, but it doesn't mean I know anything about them. Um, and I suspect that a lot of our listeners don't either. Tell us, tell me a little bit more about, about how ISO New England is involved in managing that regional, regional grid. Right. So ISO New England is just a name. Um, it, 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 ISO technically means independent system operator, but it's just a name. Uh, ISO New England is the name of the organization that plans and manages the New England transmission grid. ISO New England also uh, plans and manages the region's wholesale energy market. So these are um, transmission and wholesale energy markets are both things that cross over state lines. And when you have uh, economies that cross over state lines, you bring in the federal interest, right? So ISO New England was established by the federal government to manage New England transmission grid and regional wholesale energy markets. That being said, ISO New England can't operate without partners here. And so ISO New England works very closely with, uh, with the states and also works very closely with utilities and other stakeholders in the region. And so, so they hold meetings. Yeah, sorry, they hold meetings uh, where we, we discuss some of the cutting edge issues uh, that, that you discuss here on the show as well. So when you say that they were established by the federal government, that means that FERC established them? Is that, is that correct? The, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, or FERC as you called it, is the uh, kind of the overhead energy agency that oversees ISO New England. Everything ISO New England does has to be approved by the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. So if uh, the states uh, and, and the public uh, demands changes at ISO New England, as we are doing right now, uh, so that we can better incorporate clean energy into our transmission grid and also into the region's wholesale energy market, ISO New England uh, can develop a proposal in response to our request uh, and file that proposal at the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, which then gives it the, the green light or the red light to move forward with the change. So, you know, one of the things that Acadia Center would like to see is markets that support clean energy. Um, and we don't really have that right now. And that's why the states are having trouble getting some of their clean energy goals met. We need ISA New England to uh, become a good partner for the state and to help us get clean energy built as quickly as possible. Right, I certainly uh, certainly hear that. 
And uh, I mean, yeah, you talked about uh, markets and uh, I don't know that you used the word contracts, but I, I think contracts with various entities is something that ISO New England does. Uh, and let's come back to that in just a second, but um, tell me what the relationship is with the Public Utilities Commission uh, in any given state uh, relative to ISO New England. It seems like they both are kind of do the same thing and I don't know who has responsibility or authority for what. Great question, Steve. Public Utilities Commission are great places that make decisions about uh, the distribution system, which is kind of uh, the local <laughs> the local grid that brings uh, electricity to your home, but it's not an interstate grid. Public Utilities Commission also convene meetings and issue orders about similar issues, including uh, clean energy, um, including uh, whether we should phase out fossil fuels. But Public Utilities Commission do it in a different framework. It's really focused on the local system, the state system, and not the interstate grid, not the interstate market. Whereas ISO New England is not a state-based entity. It really focuses on a wholesale energy market that involves the whole region and transmission systems that involve the whole region and beyond. Honestly, transmission goes uh, beyond ISO New England, and so we are connected to our, our neighbors in other regions as well. So, so what would happen if the uh, PUC in a given state said, uh, you know, the, the, they, they, their goal was or they were going to do something uh, in the, on the renewable energy side that wasn't consistent with what ISO New England could allow? I mean, I don't, I don't know how to answer the question, how to ask the question, because I just, I still don't understand the relationship there. The states have energy offices as well as the Public Utilities Commission. Um, so there's more than one actor at the state level, um, but the states do have input into ISO New England. So I mentioned earlier that there are meetings convened by us in New England of all the different uh, decision makers and stakeholders that have a, have a stake in our region's energy future. And that includes uh, state representatives. Some of those representatives are from the public utilities commissions in the various states. Um, and they can provide direct input to ISO New England on what ISO New England is, is considering doing. So if ISO New England wants to uh, reform its transmission planning, uh, the states can say, yes, please, uh, we want you to reform your transmission planning. We want you to look forward to the next 10, 20, 15 um, uh, you know, 20, uh, years to see um, how we can achieve our clean energy goal through, um, through providing this transmission that will get the clean energy where we need to go. States have that input um, in theory. Uh, but the channels of communication can get a little muddy. Uh, however, that is one way in which the states and ISO New England can directly talk to each other. I, I don't see uh, what you're you know, thinking that there's, there's quite as much conflict between uh, Public Utilities Commission decisions and ISO New England decisions because they are um, about different subjects. It's all energy, it's all clean energy, but one is talking about um, a, just a different market. Okay. Well, that, that certainly makes sense. Um, so let's see here. So you mentioned transmission capacity. Um, and you know, my perspective, 
from the layperson. I mean, I, I was actually a member of the Maine Solar Energy Association way back in the 70s before probably anybody knew what photovoltaics were. Uh, and so I've been, to me, it just, that sort of thing just makes, made so much sense to me when I was, when I was, you know, a kid practically. Um, the, we hear lots about the challenges of incorporating renewable energy into the grid because of their intermittent nature. Um, and part of my perspective has always been, geez, we can forecast the wind and we know when the sun's going to be out. So how is it that difficult? Does ISO New England get into that level of detail? Does ISO New England get into a, a granular level of detail about the intermittency of clean energy? Like when, when, when it's going to be sunny and when it's going to be windy. ISO New England uh, sees itself and, and really is uh, the, the entity that makes sure the lights stay on no matter what. Uh, whether the wind is blowing, the sun is shining, the, the um, smokestacks are puffing. Um, ISO New England's job is to uh, make sure we have the resources we need. Um, that's, you know, that's always been their job. And right now what they're dealing with is this transition from you know, every time they need something, grabbing for a fossil fuel, uh, to moving towards every time you need something, you think, think about uh, some other resources that are available. Fossil fuels have been a crutch that we've relied on for, for such a long time. I think ISO New England got used to, to using that crutch. Uh, and so you know, we need to help wean them off of that, uh, keep encouraging ISO New England to uh, look for other solutions that, that exist now and, and that are available. Right, and I think that's a great term that, that society in general has used fossil fuels as a, a crutch and you know, they were there uh, and could be turned on and off. So uh, does ISO New England, let's imagine that it's a, a cloudy, calm day. Do they reach out to specific uh, natural gas plants and tell them to turn on because the grid is going to need it? Is that, do they work at that level? ISA New England uh, works at a very granular level. Yes, they will okay. reach out to operators. They will uh, reach out, you know, in, in theory, uh, they could reach out to demand response uh, providers. Um, they, they could uh, call on a whole bunch of different resources depending on what the need is. Okay, and that's kind of what I figured. So, so uh, let me give you a personal example that, uh, that I don't know how accurate it was at the time or how accurate it is today. I was on a tour uh, with a, a number of other people uh, on, uh, on a wind farm several years ago. Uh, and the, uh, I guess I can just cut right to the chase here. The representative of the company, I guess I will avoid using the company's name, literally told this group of people on the, the tour that uh, when the wind blew, ISO New England shut down hydroelectric plants rather than fossil fuel plants. And this person literally said, as far as they knew, wind power from their from any of their installations had never replaced a drop of fossil fuels because of the contracts within ISO New England. Was there any truth to that back then? And is there any truth to that today? I, I, I don't know the details of that particular situation, but I do know um, that we are in the process of making major reforms, um, but really just very early in the process, uh, making 
reforms to the energy market, uh, making reforms to our energy commitments, uh, kind of what you're talking about. Um, it, it gets pretty technical pretty quick, um, but you know, there's, there's dispatch order, the auction market, um, and I don't want to go into that level of detail, um, but bottom line, right now, clean energy doesn't really have uh, a home in ISO New England wholesale markets. And so as a result, the states have been having to go it alone in many ways. Um, they've been having to get clean energy done without ISO New England and its market as a partner. That's a real um, challenge for the states. The states have to issue uh, separate procurement. Um, they have to try to figure out how to get the transmission done uh, for those energy procurements. That is, you know, um, contracts soliciting clean energy. They want to reach their decarbonization goals because it's the only way to stop this, uh, this cycle that we're in right now, where more fossil fuels causes more instability, causes more price volatility, causes more impact on, on our, our kids' future, right? Um, so the states are, are working hard to get clean energy online. And right now, um, ISO New England's markets don't really uh, serve as a home for clean energy. So <laughs> there was a process started uh, recently. Um, I don't know if you've talked about it on the show already, the New England, uh, New England governor's energy uh, vision process, where the New England governors all got together and basically issued a set of criticisms of ISO New England saying, why aren't you on board with the changes that we're implementing at the state level? We are procuring this clean energy. We are working really hard to uh, address climate change because it, it, it's an existential you know, threat to our, our families, our kids, our future. And we don't see that you're, you're doing the same at the regional level. And that's, that's a real problem. And so, you know, ISO New England in response has started to make some baby steps uh, of, of reform. We need to see a whole lot more. Um, but, you know, one thing um, we're, we're voting on now in the stakeholder groups is an initial reform that would help to um, open the markets a little bit more to clean energy instead of letting fossil fuels uh, dominate because they've um, they basically been what you know, what we designed the system for. It's, it's a rigged system because fossil fuels were the only resource in the past. And so if you design your system around uh, fossil fuels, uh, you've, you've, you've rigged the system against the new resources that are coming in. Well, it sounds like that's kind of the fundamental uh, issue underlying the Acadia Center's goal of grid reform. But does that, Absolutely. that sounds right? Absolutely. We have, um, you know, we have the resources um, coming up here in New England to, to solve the climate crisis. We have the offshore wind, we have the solar, we have, um, you know, resources right down to um, the thermostat in, in your home, Steve, right? Which we should be able to um, turn that up a degree or down a degree when, when we're having, um, uh, you know, uh, high demand days and ISO New England says, hey, we might have to shut something down um, if we don't have a, another resource to call on. They could be calling on the thermostat right there in your home. Um, we have these amazing resources now 
that are either available now or will be here in the next few years. And we need to position ourselves to use them as quickly as possible, um, you know, in part um, because it will save us money, uh, in part because it will help uh, the climate and, and uh, help communities that have been suffering too long from the impacts of climate, uh, you know, climate uh, harming, but also people harming power plants. Um, but we have to, you know, we, we have to move as quickly as possible. If we don't move as quickly as possible, other regions will get past us. Um, offshore wind investment dollars will go into uh, other places. And we won't be the green jobs driven economy that uh, we really are poised to be right now. Uh, thank you for saying that. I mean, I had back in a consulting job that I had back in 2012, I, I published a report on the fact that uh, the Maine could become the renewable energy leader. It was going to be great for our economy uh, and, and above and beyond just green jobs in itself. So uh, thank you for saying that. Your your comment about uh, about uh, the, the, I don't know who it would be, not ISO New England, it would probably be the utility in terms of being able to turn your thermostat up or down. Um, the era of smart meters, it seems to me there's lots of opportunities there. But interestingly, uh, when I was on, in Bangor Hydro District in the 1980s, the 1980s no less, uh, in a, in, if there was a period of time in the summertime or a cold snap in the wintertime, they could actually shut my hot water heater off themselves. Um, and I don't even know how they did that, but it certainly seems like that sort of thing, again, just makes an awful lot of sense in terms of being able to get the grid to work better. So any comment on, on smart meters and what opportunities we're not using there? There's smart meters, and then there, there's a whole world of new technology, probably since, since you've had that experience, Steve, right? We're living now in the Internet of, of Things age, right? Um, you, can, you can even bypass uh, smart meters, uh, which can be a, a, a significant investment to get some things done. So, for example, um, EV, EV chargers, electric vehicle chargers, you can have smart networked EV chargers that bypass the need for a smart meter too. So there's some areas where we have smart meters in place, some areas where we don't have those kinds of intelligent meters, but we have other resources that we can use uh, to accomplish the same goal. It's critical that um, ISO New England and the states uh, keep building up those resources. Those are really cool resources in a way because they're in our home, right? Um, Distributed energy resources, these, these things that are all over the place, not just at power plants, um, they're cool because they help to democratize clean energy. Uh, on the one hand, they help us to get control over costs in our own homes. Um, but at the same time, they offer a resource to someone like an ISO New England that can solve a, a, a grid problem, a large scale interstate grid problem um, at, at the snap of, of finger by uh, controlling uh, those thermostats or those EV chargers uh, on a large scale all at the same time. It's, it's, it's interesting to think about how this works and what a great resource it is. One of the reasons it's such a great resource is because it's incredibly flexible, right? It can happen um, uh, at the snap of a finger. Uh, and, and not every, um, you know, not every resource is that flexible. Um, but it's, it's a really miraculous one in that respect. Um, ISO New England hasn't been taking that resource seriously. And I'm pretty, uh, you know, 
pretty concerned that if we leave it out of our markets, we're going to be relying more on fossil fuel uh, to provide some of the same services that we could be providing in our own home. So what's the, uh, what's the prognosis relative to getting ISO New England to be more flexible? The states need to keep pushing. We need to keep pushing, uh, we being the public, um, the, the citizens who are impacted by fossil fuels, the citizens who um, you know, don't want dirty power plants in their backyard. But Acadia Center is also working with um, other partners to um, you know, hold ISO New England accountable. So um, we will uh, protest any decision that you know, goes to the, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission that we talked about earlier um, that doesn't include bringing those resources into the energy market. Those resources need to be part of the energy market if we're gonna move off of fossil fuels. That certainly makes sense. I want to remind everybody that you're listening for, to Power for the People here on WERU-FM, 89.9 in Blue Hill and 99.9 in Bangor. The guest is, is Melissa Burchard, uh, from who is a senior regulatory attorney for the Acadia Center in Boston. And again, uh, she's in Boston, but Acadia Center has uh, regional offices around, including one here in Maine. So uh, ISO New England takes some uh, instructions from the federal Energy uh, Regulatory Commission, FERC. Uh, is there any change uh, in philosophy coming out of FERC um, because of the Biden administration? We are seeing uh, some potential for exciting progress at the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission right now, Steve. Um, it's, it's early in the game, but we're seeing some real promise. Uh, one of the things we're seeing from FERC is an eye on getting transmission built to meet state uh, clean energy policy. That's a big hurdle uh, as we discussed here in New England, but it's also a big hurdle in other regions. And so FERC is opening its doors right now to comment on how we can um, basically get clean energy built by getting uh, you know, the transmission out there to deliver it where it needs to go. Um, we're also seeing FERC take um, you know, a, a potential new look at, at natural gas. And it was early in the game there, um, but we're definitely seeing some more skepticism for um, resources that are harmful to our community. So let me ask a question relating to that then. Uh, in the renewables future, uh, well, right now, uh, renewables do their thing when they do their thing, and then ISO New England calls on a fossil fuel plant, probably a gas plant in New England, in Maine, to fire up when uh, when it needs to. What should be? Uh, hopefully, this is a fair question. What should baseload be uh, in the future world, a few years out, when uh, when there are more renewables around, and hopefully we are doing less with fossil fuels. What should baseload be, Steve? Uh, you know, the, the concept of baseload, and I don't know if your, your um, audience is necessarily versed in that term, um, but even to me, it's a little bit, um, it doesn't mean a whole lot, the word baseload. Um, we have different types of resources now than we had back when it was, um, you know, uh, a black and white world. We've been talking about resources like turning your thermostat up or down. We've been talking about resources um, like, uh, you know, solar and 
storage. Um, and there is a difference between intermittent resources and other resources. Um, but baseload is kind of a dinosaur of a term that, that really was from the age when we didn't have um, flexible resources. We didn't have um, demand, uh, you know, response type resources. We didn't have the great diversity of clean energy uh, resources that we have now. Um, do we need to maintain reliability? Yes. So it used to be the baseload was kind of the way you'd say, oh, that's, that's kind of your, your bread and butter to maintain reliability. Um, these days, it's a more diverse world than that. It's not black and white, um, baseload or not baseload. We have uh, more tools at our fingertips, and that can be um, you know, confusing for regulators maybe, um, but um, uh, they're getting the hang of it now. Uh, we know that it's, it's a great thing to have more than uh, just you know, two resources, black and white. It's good to have uh, a full uh, spectrum of uh, distributed energy resources, clean energy, uh, large-scale clean energy, small-scale clean energy, community solar, um, uh, offshore wind, onshore wind, um, this, this whole spectrum of clean energy resources, along with your, your um, hydro, and you know, obviously we still have uh, plenty of, of nuclear and also um, currently natural gas and, 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 and more oil than we should here in New England. But, um, that, Mix is diversifying, and hopefully, uh, you know, we'll be phasing out the gas and the oil as soon as possible. Well, and thank you for that. I mean, I asked the question because you see the concept of baseload regularly in the media, uh, and so I think a lot of people uh, uh, still are thinking of it in that way. And I think you're exactly right that it's kind of like an investment for portfolio for your finances. You want diversification. Uh, and if you have the diversification, then you have the flexibility uh, to do other things. One, and, and one of the things coming on the line, of course, is that there probably is storage uh, in our future uh, relative to the intermittent sources. And so that makes a lot of sense. But let me ask you uh, perhaps an unfair question, because this happened before you were involved in the New England grid in particular. But are you familiar with the grid solar project that happened in Booth Bay several years ago? Um, you're talking about the... Uh, non-transmission alternative, is that what you're thinking that, of? That's correct. Yeah, so non-transmission alternatives are also um, hugely important, Steve, and, and, and I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, one of the reasons they're important uh, is because they, they save a, a ton of money. But let's go back and talk a little bit about what um, you know non-transmission alternatives are or what they can be. Uh, because again, this is a diverse concept. It's not just, you know, kind of like, Kind of like um, you know we were saying, there's not this black and white here, uh, transmission or non-transmission. There's um, so a non-transmission alternative is really any solution that allows you to avoid uh, sinking money into transmission because it's expensive, right? And and it also um, you know affects our communities in terms of how they decide it somewhere. So a non-transmission alternative um, could be energy efficiency. It could be uh, solar plus storage. Um, it could be uh, demand response, which you know goes back to that your, your thermostat or your EV charger. Um, all different kinds of solutions um, that can substitute for your traditional concept of oh, we got to put uh, uh, you know a wire up uh, to get this done. And the utilities traditionally just wanted to put a wire up. The obvious reason is because they profit from that. Uh, but uh, it, it, you know it's also a, a, a framework that wasn't familiar to utilities in the past. And now um, we're able to provide solutions that aren't just 
uh, poles and wire. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. It's part of, uh, you mentioned earlier on, a bit of a conflict of interest with utilities. And you, as you just said, that their, their uh, perspective uh, based on their history uh, and their profit margins uh, is to just build capacity. And, uh, and perhaps that's not the best thing that we need to do. So I, I, did, a, I did a study uh, funded by the Maine Technology Institute uh, several years ago, uh, where using LIDAR, we went out and looked at uh, several regions of Maine where, because the LIDAR can do uh, both, both slope and area, um, we uh, projected based on the areas that we looked at that uh, the, if all of the rooftops that were suitable for solar had solar, um, and then we scaled it up to the whole state, uh, we could actually produce 56 of Maine's uh, grid power just based on rooftop solar alone. And in fact, though that was back when solar panels were 220 watts and now they're more like 400. So it was 56% back in 2000, whatever it was, 13 when we did the study. It's like 80% today if every roof had sold. Well, obviously we're not gonna get there anytime soon. But to me, uh, if every, let's imagine that your home has, is, has solar on it and is producing 60% of your electrical grid, your electrical needs, that lowers the demand on the grid all by itself. And so for people to say, I mean, back in the Bush administration, there was a $4 trillion plan to expand the electrical grid in the United States. I can't imagine we need to do that if we go to this all of the above thing that we've been talking about here. Well, how am I wrong on that? Well, um, you're right, Steve, that there's been this kind of um, controversy uh, between large scale and small scale resources. So. Um, sometimes we hear people saying, oh, large-scale solar is better than, than small-scale solar. And by small-scale, I mean uh, kind of what you're, you're talking about, the solar that we can put on our own roof, uh, in our yards, on our farms, on our firehouses. Um, and, and so there's you know, sometimes a bias uh, towards large-scale. You know, and, and I'll tell you why. Um, one of the reasons for that is because utilities and big companies can make money off of it. And so... Um, when you've got a utility planning your system, uh, there's a conflict of interest there. They're planning your system. They're often uh, investing in, or their partners and, and subsidiaries are investing in uh, some of the large-scale resources uh, and the transmission that's needed to uh, transmit that large-scale resource, uh, the, the generation from that large-scale resource. Whereas when you're talking about solar right on your roof um, or in your, your yard, you don't need the transmission. You also don't need the utility, right? Uh, your utility is not really a player in, in that uh, transaction, uh, but it does achieve the same goal. Now, ultimately, when we're trying to get to 100% clean energy, and we're not there now, I acknowledge that, but, but ultimately, the goal is to get to 100% clean energy. And in order to get to 100% clean energy, we have to be all in on a wide variety of clean energy resources. Um, that includes uh, the large-scale energy, it includes the distributed energy, it includes the demand response, and then you know, it also includes um, energy efficiency and, uh, and a lot of those you know, things you've been talking about, which is the alternatives. Uh, what are the alternatives to our traditional ways of thinking? So uh, again, a quick reminder here that uh, you're listening to Power for the People here on WERU-FM, and the guest is Melissa Burchard. 
who's uh, an attorney for the Acadia Center operating out of Boston. Uh, and uh, her uh, role with them is uh, uh, focused on the big picture uh, grid issues that we've been talking about here. Let's, uh, in, our, in our last few minutes here, let's pivot and come back to homeowner related things that people can be thinking about. Um, so uh, in, in, at the risk of, of opening a can of worms here, um, because we do talk about Efficiency Main Trust regularly on this program and what, they're, uh, what they can offer to homeowners. But uh, in terms of the regional grid, the uh, Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, REGI, is, uh, is the, the, the um, funding mechanism for Efficiency Main. Can you talk big picture a little bit about how REGI works and how that uh, funds uh, our Efficiency uh, Main programs? Sure, thanks for asking, Steve. And uh, you may know that we have, Acadia Center has another expert on REGI, so I'm not the lead on that subject, but um, just briefly, uh, the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, or, or REGI, as we call it, uh, launched in 2009. Um, currently, I believe it includes 11 states. It's what's called a, a cap and invest program, right? So uh, REGI applies a regional limit to carbon dioxide from power plants, and then power plant owners uh, purchase emissions allowances from the states through auctions, and then the states after that, invest the proceeds um, from the auction. So um, that's where you get your, your money to do all sorts of uh, work that Efficiency Maine and others do. Basically, companies have to buy carbon credits. Uh, and unfortunately, I think it is all carbon credits, not greenhouse gas credits. Is that correct? Yeah, I believe so. I believe so. And um, I believe that $4.3 billion has been generated through those allowance auctions um, uh, since the program started. So that's a significant chunk of change to do uh, energy efficiency and other, other projects. Well, that's right. And Efficiency Maine is a huge resource uh, for, uh, for Maine homeowners. And we've talked about Efficiency Maine and in fact had Efficiency Maine people on and, and we will here in the future. Um, relative to greenhouse gas uh, targets and even grid efficiency, um, what uh, you know, can we talk a little bit about options that homeowners can look at? So I'm personally a big fan, and we've done programs on this on this show about uh, air source heat pumps, for example. I've got two of them uh, in my house right now. One of them staring at me at this moment, uh, and so I actually discontinued my oil boiler in 2016 uh, and took it out, uh, and my house is uh, is completely uh, electrical right now, and. Uh, Guess I'm getting into a number of different things for where we might go with this, and and I'm uh, I'm on a community solar farm right now, so I'm 100% solar powered as well. Uh, comment on what you see the opportunities for homeowners are to to get to where we've been talking big picture here, how they can contribute in their own homes and save some money as well. well it sounds like you're a great model, Steve. Uh, first, I just want to take a, a quick step back and say homeowners can contribute. Um, in lots of ways. And one of those ways is to get out and vote when it's voting time and, and um, put their their vote and their words, um, you know, also place op-eds in the paper, um, uh, offer some leadership in their communities uh, for the larger scale changes that need to take place. We often try to look at what we can control at, at our home level. Um, and those are really important options, but at the same time, I want to encourage folks to take a look outside of their homes and at their larger communities, their neighborhoods, uh, as you are with community solar, right? Safe. 
and um, at, at their choices um, when they go, uh, you know, to the polls, when they go um, to their schools, and their schools talk about, you know, well, maybe we should have some clean energy resources in our schools. Um, there's the larger picture, and then there's um, the picture that you can't control right there in your home. In terms of homes, um, air source heat pumps are just an amazing resource, right? I'm sure you love yours. I'm sure you have, you know, a remote control, and you can just sit there and press the remote control when you want to turn it up, when you don't want to turn it down. And it's so silent, and it's so comfortable. Um, it's pretty awesome. So air source heat pumps are uh, readily available now. Um, and they do serve the needs of uh, New England as well as warmer climates because we have cold climate uh, heat pumps now that didn't used to exist. Those cold climate heat pumps are um, hyper efficient and they can keep us warm even on cold New England winter uh, nights. In addition, we have uh, the rooftop solar, but you mentioned community solar and I think that's an interesting option too. So rooftop solar, um, if you have the money, if you have the roof, if you have um, you know, the, the sunlight, if you're not shaded, you can put um, rooftop solar on your roof, but community solar is a great option either, you know, if, if you have the means um, as an additional um, investment, but also uh, for people who don't have uh, their own home, renters, it's really good for renters. Um, it's also good for uh, people who uh, don't have a roof that's suitable for solar, um, and community solar is where you know, we can all come together and chip in just a little bit to uh, put a solar array somewhere in the community. It could be on you know, your community center. It could be on the ground. Um, it, it could be on a church roof. Uh, but everybody chips in a little bit, and then they get a benefit back on the utility bill. Um, and by doing that, we open up uh, the local solar uh, um, option to everybody. Uh, to people who don't have as much money, to people who, you know, the roof is a little bit older, uh, to people who are, are renters, um, but uh, they still want to have an impact and they still want to control their costs, right? Because that's one of the benefits too. We can control our costs while having a positive impact uh, and uh, greening our own, um, our own life. Yeah, so uh, and I do just want to, uh, to uh, mention uh, that there's a bit of... Um, uh, terminology problem perhaps with community solar and, and again we'll do a program on this maybe even next month but community solar traditionally over the last decade or more has been where individuals buy into community solar so you still have the upfront cost as if you were putting solar on your house whereas the new community solar uh, same same term uh, is actually an investor-owned uh, option for homeowners where uh, you don't have to put any money up front you don't have any long-term contract and you get 15 percent off uh, on your electric bill. So uh, again, and, and your, your point is exactly right, that uh, if you're in an apartment or you don't have solar on your roof, community solar works, uh, works very well. Um, on, back to air source heat pumps just for a second. One of the, and, and pardon me for, for ranting as I sometimes do about contractors and architects, uh, but I was doing a project uh, a number of years ago where um, I guess I will describe it as a, uh, uh, well, it was an expansion to um, the dining facility at the place where I used to work. Uh, and it was a perfect opportunity to use air source heat pumps. And we had a major uh, architectural firm from Portland, Maine, not from somewhere, not somewhere in the boonies, who came in and I said, let's do air source heat pumps here. And they said, air source heat pumps don't work up here. 
And I go, you know, you just use the term cold climate heat pump. And I said, do you know there's tens of thousands of them in there? And they said, no, we didn't actually know that. We'll go research it a little bit more. And, and you know, the story goes on and on. But those kinds of things uh, are, are really setting us back. And so that's, uh, that's a significant issue. Uh, I do want to emphasize uh, what you just said in terms of educating yourself so that you can be an educated voter in my classes. Uh, I start every, every course with saying that my goal is to make you a science literate citizen and so that you can be a better voter and be a leader in your local community. So again, thank you for saying uh, that as well. Uh, and that, that relates to what we can all do above and beyond, uh, beyond our homes. Um, the, perhaps the last thing, we've got uh, three or four minutes left. Maybe the last thing that I want to, uh, to talk about is something that you've mentioned several times yourself and, uh, and mentioned on your website as well. And that's the Tadia Center's perspective on offshore wind, uh, which has been a little bit controversial here because our previous governor uh, shut that idea down completely. Uh, and now we seem to be moving in that direction. Tell us your perspective on it. Tell us the time frame that you think uh, we actually are going to get something off offshore wind feeding the grid in New England. Sure. So, um, you know, offshore wind, in my view, is one of the most exciting energy developments. Uh, of this decade and beyond, not just in New England. It's exciting in, in a number of regions of the country, but it's very exciting here. We have the opportunity to take part in a major um, you know, transformation that includes investment from all over the world, um, that includes uh, jobs here in this region. And, uh, you know, we've spent too long importing fossil fuels from the rest of the country, from the rest of the world, um, to be able to harness the winds off the coast of New England to provide so much of uh, the energy that we need here is, is very exciting. So, the, you know, the region's already contracted for, I think, um, uh, over 3,000 megawatts of offshore wind energy and has committed to a total of almost 6,000 megawatts of offshore wind energy. Um, and according to some estimates, uh, we will need uh, 25,000 to 40,000 megawatts of offshore wind energy by 2050 to meet the region's decarbonization goals. So it's exciting. It's also important. It's a, it's a very important um, part of the puzzle picture to meeting our clean energy and decarbonization goals and, and addressing climate change uh, here in New England. So you mentioned there, there are current contracts. How did, what did you say about that a second ago? There's already commitments of some kind? That's right. So as you're aware, um, each state uh, in the region has decarbonization goals, and the, the states have been moving forward with, uh, I think, the term we, we used earlier, which is um, uh, procurement contracts, uh, seeking um, uh, clean energy to serve uh, to meet those decarbonization goals. And there are some that are specifically targeted to offshore wind. Um, those are really important <clears throat> uh, procurements. Now, offshore wind isn't our only resource, but as I just you know, said, those numbers are pretty big, right? <laughs> um, the, the, we have a lot of uh, potential, uh, just a huge potential um, for uh, generation of energy from offshore wind. It's also really important in the region because um, it generates a lot in the winter. And so uh, the states are excited about procuring a resource that uh, can substitute for fossil fuels in the winter. 
we have had um, you know a few too many winters where we have to burn oil in our power plant to keep the lights on and offshore wind offers the promises uh, offers the promise of uh, substituting a great local uh, clean resource for uh, that oil and, and the natural gas that we're burning in the winter right now. So states have been procuring it, um, uh, that is making contracts for it. And I, uh, we're seeing that in other regions as well. So we're kind of racing ahead to get, uh, uh, you know, to get in front of some of the other regions on the investment dollars that are there. And so how is it possible to do a procurement contract with something that is still hypothetical? How does that, uh, when, when is that uh, contract supposedly going to kick in? But so that's one of the reasons why uh, transmission is such a big deal, right? Um, we've talked a lot on this show about transmission and transmission uh, because it's the, um, you know, the circulatory system for uh, electricity uh, we need to have that put in the ground in order to get uh, the offshore wind where it needs to go. Um, some of that can get done pretty readily uh, without a great uh, cost and a lot of time. Um, but to get all of the, the resources that I just mentioned, you know, if we're going to get 25 to 40,000 megawatts of offshore wind energy, uh, then we're going to need more transmission boats. So we've got the low-hanging fruit seeds that we can put, uh, you know, put online in, in the next couple of years. But then we've got, oh, and we already have our first, um, you know, offshore wind uh, generator here in, in New England that's operating, right? Um, so, but we've also got low-hanging fruit that's coming in the next couple of years. And we've got this longer-term uh, uh, potential for just massive energy generation from offshore wind. And, and that's part of what we're trying to get ISO New England to take seriously and to say, how are we going to uh, plan for that? There, there's discussion about building an offshore energy uh, grid, connecting uh, the different uh, offshore wind um, generating units. Um, and there's discussion about um, onshore uh, transmission that might be needed to get that uh, energy where it needs to go. Right. And, uh, and I guess I will wrap up here because we are essentially out of time by just uh, pointing out that you see various numbers. I mean, the one that I've seen is that we spend $5 billion a year either. I think it's in, I think that's the number for Maine alone uh, on fossil fuels and send it out of state. Uh, and for heaven's sakes, let's keep it uh, in state. Let's keep it local. Let's generate the power here in the wing as, uh, as we certainly can. So, Melissa, thank you so much. Uh, you've been listening to Power for the People here on WERU-FM, uh, 89.9 in Blue Hill, 99.9 in Bangor. And uh, the guest has been Melissa Burchard, the Senior Regulatory Attorney for the Acadia Center, uh, dealing with grid-related issues. So uh, this has been a, a great conversation. And as always, there's, uh, there's a few more hours of things we could have covered if we had more time, but uh, we are out of time. So thank you again, and uh, I will uh, I expect we will be in communication again at some point. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. All right. Bye-bye.